Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. Today I am joined by Dr. Mitzi Clark, an assistant clinical professor at Cornell University. She is a fellow boarded dermatologist. She is a fellow vet mom. And it was a ton of fun to have her on the podcast today. And we talk about one of the most frustrating things we deal with in veterinary dermatology, and that is methicillin-resistant staph pyoderma. Purposely recording this episode, the scary episode on the week of Halloween, because MRSP is truly one of the most frustrating, scary things that we deal with. So we talk about recognizing it, you know, what in the history makes us suspicious that we could have an MRSP? When do we culture? How do we treat these patients? So it is a really good informative topic, and I really hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of the Derm uh, Vet Podcast. I am so excited because I get to reconnect um, with Dr. Mitzi Clark, who practices at Cornell University. So she is a fancy schmancy uh, university uh, dermatologist, Um, but it's always fun to really connect. We were just kind of chatting through this whole COVID world, like, you know, all these meetings, we're used to seeing each other like once a year and um, all the derm nerds get together. And we are actually supposed to be in Australia right now for our world Congress. We have um, dermatology. We're super fortunate that we have uh, World Congress of Veterinary Dermatology once every four years. And so it was meant, and we had all been anticipating and excited that it was supposed to be in Sydney, Australia right now. Um, but instead COVID yeah. And can we are here? Um, and you know, isn't that just life, but we get to meet virtually at least. So I'm really excited, um, to welcome Dr. Mitzi Clark to the podcast today. So Mitzi, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Yeah. It's just, you know, I feel like at this point we all need that kind of reconnection. And we were talking about this too. Like for me, the podcast is almost like an excuse to have to like really reconnect with people because, um, you know, no one wants to just talk, listen to me talk all the time. Like it's more fun to have you guys on and we can like chat and I learn a lot. And we, you know, I I don't, I think people don't realize dermatologists, like we're super, we're like this really weird nerdy group that like actually really loves talking about this stuff and our spare time. (laughs) Yeah. In our spare time as we are, like I'm, I'm stealing you to wait to record this podcast, but we also are, uh, we're both moms of two young kids, very similar in age. So around one and three years old. So we are also like juggling this super crazy, uh, world that is being, you know, a working mom with young children in the midst of a viral pandemic. So <laughs> in a weird way, I think taking like 30 to 40 minutes to just chat about methicillin resistant staff suited or medias is like really exciting for us. <laughs> we're, we're it's, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> like, most people probably would not understand that, that we're like, oh, we get peace and quiet to talk about MRSP. Perfect, sign me up. That sounds like lots of fun. Um, but what we do know, is methicillin resistant staph is a really 
big issue. Um, and when I talk to clients, like when they come to me and we're starting to talk about allergies, um, and the frustration of that, and, you know, people are maybe more concerned about using things like certain antipyritics or certain medications, um, or flea control or, or name your, you know, pick it. Um, I tell them, I think the scariest thing we deal with is not managing these allergies and ending up with really scary things like methicillin resistant staph or pseudomonas otitis. So for me, I actually think this topic is one of the most difficult things we deal with in dermatology. Um, but let's start kind of simple. So when we're looking at a case that we know something's going on here, something's not right. And we're suspicious that a pyoderma is there. What are, and I know there's lots of answers to this question, but what are the specific clinical signs that you're kind of looking for when you're seeing a case that would have pyoderma? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in our heads, we often classify as superficial versus deep. And to me, that can look a little bit different. Um, and so superficial pyoderma, often associated with hair follicles, like, you know, often there'll be a bacterial folliculitis, usually will have these lesions like papules, pustules, um, crusts, very common, right? Because pustules are super transient. Um, we may see epidermal cholerates. And then because it's often invading down in the hair shafts, the bacteria, we get the, the hair loss, you know, the hypotrichosis or the alopecia. So most of the time, whenever I'm seeing something that looks like a folliculitis, if I'm seeing pustules, papules, crusts, um, alopecia associated with them, cholerates, immediately staph pyoderma is on my brain. Um, now I know you've done some, some talks on, you know, new mediated conditions, right? So it's not that it's the only differential, but it's certainly one of the more common ones that we are seeing in the clinic day in and day out. Um, and then kind of taking that a little bit further, if I start to see these really deep seated papules, if I start to see, um, especially like draining tracts, things that you call furuncles, right? where it's, it's gone down in the hair follicle and busted the hair, hair follicle out, um, I start thinking about these deeper pyodermas. If we're seeing signs of cellulitis, you know, sometimes that skin just gets super thick and you can squeeze it and the pus just actually comes up. Um, then I know it's gone deeper and it may actually change my treatment approach, you know, a, a bit. But usually those good follicular lesions, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, and you brought up a really, really important thing. Um, superficial and deep, there's a reason we separate it. So, you know, as we dive into talking more about like therapy, um, I know a lot of questions, a lot of times I get asked, you know, how long do you treat these cases? Sure. And, you know, I always, uh, joke. And now, um, a friend I've met through Instagram who does a lot of cat medicine, Dr. Gary Marshall, we both have the same saying, whether it's, you're dealing just with cats as he does, or for me, dermatology. And my classic answer is it depends. I can never like give a finite answer for, I'd say half the things people ask me because, you know, it, it really depends. And I find that when we start treating the big thing is not necessarily, Oh, we're going to treat a superficial pyoderma for, two or three weeks, we're going to treat a deep pyoderma for, you know, X amount of time. Like it's that recheck, it's that, you know, repeating cytologies, which we'll talk about. Um, but however, I think what we can agree on is recognizing what a deep pyoderma is. They usually do need longer courses of treatment and like substantial. Like sometimes people are really shocked that we will do like six weeks, you know, de really depending on the case, it could be a substantial amount of time that you're treating deep pyoderma. So I, I love that you brought that up. How, when you see these cases and you mentioned that even a specialist, 
we can't a hundred percent look at a case and say that is absolutely pyoderma. I was fooled yesterday. I had a case that came in. I'm like, you're yeast. You're definitely yeast. Like you smell your yeast. You look like yeast. And we found a couple of yeast, but it was like rip roaring coccyon rods on the skin. So even as people who only do skin, you know, we can't hundred percent confidently always say that or ever really say it without doing our lovely cytology that we all know we're all passionate about. So then walk me through, you see a case, you're seeing these clinical signs. I know you're going to make my heart warm and say that you're always doing cytology, but walk me through like, what type of cytology do you like? How are you utilizing cytology in the clinic for these cases? Yeah. You know, I think I have the advantage of teaching veterinary students. And so it's an, you get to make them do it. (laughs) It's like an excellent excuse for me to always do cytology because, you know, I did a ton of cytology in private practice. I was in private practice for about seven years. But, you know, once in a blue moon, you skip a step here or there and and you don't skip a step when you're with the veterinary students because you want to make sure that they're knowing, you know, um, exactly the way it quote unquote should be done. So if I'm seeing lesions, it depends on the lesion, right? There's that it depends again. (laughs) Uh, Most of the time, um, especially with the superficial lesions, I'm just doing impression cytology. And so what that means to me is if I have an intact pustule, which I would say is not the most common thing I see, um, then I'm going to take a sterile needle, rip open that pustule and smear that goodness on the slide and look directly. Um, But more often than not, I'm seeing papules and crusts, maybe collarettes. And so with the papules, I've actually um, learned to sort of pluck a couple hairs if there are any left and give it a good squeeze. And then I'll serially press that on the slide. If I have crusts or collarettes, I'm taking the edge of that slide, you know, and gently elevating that crust or collarette, getting to that wonderful glistening, you know, pink um, goo underneath. We get very excited about these things. We're so weird. (laughs) Like I saw you and you're getting excited I'm like me too and when I talked to Melissa about pimpagus we got all excited about pustules that's when you know you're meant to be a dermatologist (laughs) yeah because you never take the only pustule right oh that is sacred (laughs) that as well if it's the only pustule on the dog let's sample something else first um but yes and then we press it and then we just uh diff quick it and look directly with the light microscope and that's what I would say I do for most of these lesions now, in the case you brought up where it really looked more like a malassezia dermatitis, mm-hmm. you may not see the papules and pustules and crust. You may just have erythema or lichenification or that sort of honey-colored, you know, crusty, scaly stuff on top, or, or maybe you're seeing, um, you know, just areas of, of hair loss. So with that, I, I may do a tape prep. Um, you know, you're going to use that clear acetate tape. Um, in tricky areas in between the digits, I may do a tape prep. Um, sometimes I love your toothpick method, you know, if you're getting lesions around, around the, the uh, perinicheal space. Um, so yeah, it just sort of depends, but more commonly a direct impression of, of the debris. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, I totally, there's different reasons to do different forms of cytology, which is important to really get comfortable with many versions of those. Um, you know, anyone who watches anything I do, like I am personally not a taper, but I respect that they're out there and that there's people who love it and do really well with it. I honestly think it's whatever you're comfortable with. I'm not against tape, but I just, that I wasn't trained that way. It really comes down to how you were trained and what you're comfortable with. But since you do utilize it sometimes, um, can you walk me through 
the staining that because that is a little bit different with tape. And so I get asked that a lot. And I think it's important, you know, with doing diff quick on direct impression smears, we often just go through the process of three stains, rinse it off and evaluate it. How do you have your students stain a tape prep? Yeah, it's a little different. Um, and just as an aside, in, in private practice, we actually had these uh, glue slides that yeah, we Yeah, I've seen those. And that was kind of fun too. Uh, but with the tape, everyone's a little different even here, but basically we skip that first step of diff quick, right? And we're going straight into the, the red <laughs> and then the purple, if you will. Um, and I personally like to actually dangle the tape off of the slide. And so I use the slide with the dangled tape to go in. And then I just take the tape and immediately press it on the slide and use like the, the blotting paper. Um, and I think that that works really well. You could just literally stain the tape by itself and then place it on a glass slide and that's fine. What is challenging when looking at tape slides is that it's irregular, right? So you're mm -hmm. constantly focusing up and down, up and down on the microscope um, because there are just so many ridges and whatnot. So I think it does a, a good job and I think it captures more things. Now, do I think you can oftentimes use a plain glass slide and just press it directly? Sure. Um, do I think that the glue slides are kind of fun because then you don't have to mess with the tape? Sure. Um, but when I'm using tape, I definitely avoid that fixator, that first step of the diff quick. And I think that's the really big thing people should realize is you essentially fixed it if it's yes. with tape. So you have done that first step. So yeah, you can really skip over having to do the fixing step because this tape has done that for you. And yeah, I mean, there's lots, I, the hard thing for me with tape and why, I, and again, it's all about how you're trained, like anything else, um, is that the regular, uh, the irregularity, like you mentioned. Um, but then also I just find it catches a lot of debris because it is, it's like sticking on everything. So you have to read, learn to read through that. But I think you just have to find what you are comfortable with. Honestly, if people are at least doing cytology, if you love tape, go for it. Like, that's fine. If you love direct impression smear, like go for it. Like sometimes, you know, I will use a cotton tipped applicator in weird areas and swab or like little draining tracks. So do it all, like get comfortable with what you want to do, but then just become an expert at it and have a few different ways that you can utilize it. Because I have, I've changed methods before. Like if I went to go get, um, you know, a certain sample and maybe like it was a weird area, like, you know, periocular and I, and I kind of try to get a slide and it's like, just not working, but it's moist. Well, then I might grab a Q-tip and be able to rub it and then roll it on a slide. So, you know, that's kind of the nice thing is you, we have all these techniques for a reason. Like there's lots of different situations we would use those. So just get really good at them. And then you will kind of figure out when and where we use certain ones. And we do, we debate. I know dermatologists that only tape prep. So like, and that's great. Like as long as we're all doing cytology, I think we're all happy about that. Um, okay. So we have done our due diligence. We've cytology. We can see, say a lot of cocci bacteria under the microscope. Clinically, it makes sense of what we're seeing. When do you, cause we know we can't just say there is a, a methicillin resistant staph infection by cytology. That's just giving us morphology of the bacteria and, and allowing us to quantify it. But when do you start being like red flag? I'm afraid that we're in methicillin resistant staph land. Like, is it the history? Is it the clinical appearance? Like what makes you worried about that? You know, I think it can be all of the above, but history is so important in Durham. I mean, it really is key. And there's so many, you know, clinical judgments I make, and I'm sure you make before you even see the patient. Oh, yeah. 
organizing in your head as, as to your differential list. So for me, um, if there's previous antibiotic use, period, okay, it's on the list, <laughs> right? And if that antibiotic use has been intermittent, not what I would call of sufficient dose or sufficient duration, that's raising the red flags. Um, I think there's also a, a lot to be said on timing, right? So if the patient has had multiple courses of let's say cephalexin, but every time it's had it, it's responded, maybe the duration isn't great and it comes back immediately afterwards. Well, is it really resistant to cephalexin or did we just not give it long enough, right? Because it's coming right back, but then every time it gets more cephalexin, it responds again. Versus that case where, you know, they've been on multiple courses of antibiotics, but now they're not responding or they're taking a really long time to respond or they come to me with these lesions and they either just finished or are still on antibiotics. So I think that those are things that I, I focus on. And then, you know, we know some things like previous exposure to fluoroquinolones, right, can be a risk factor for developing MRSP. Um, so that's something else in the history that I, I would look for. And then clinically, I think it, you know, it just depends. I mean, they can look the same. Mm -hmm. um, certainly if I have my more widespread severe pyodermas, it's, it's gonna be on the list, but you can see that with regular susceptible staff too. So I don't think that gives you as much as the history really does to sort of help guide you. And honestly, in this day and age, you know, we're supposed to be good antimicrobial stewards. So I don't think it's ever wrong to culture um, if you're going to reach for a systemic antibiotic. But, um, you know, I'm still okay with some empirical choice if it hasn't had, re if it's not a repeat offender with, with a lot of antibiotics in its history. I think history is one of the most key things in any aspect of Durham, like you said. And I agree with you. I've seen cases where they're just like rip roaring pyoderma, like awful, like terrible, like, you know, like total body wipeout is one of my mentors used to call them. Like, it's just like no hair, you know, just awful. And then, but they've like never been on antibiotics before, or you culture them and it's just like all sensitive. We're like, oh my gosh. And they're like totally respond to cephalexin, no problem. And then I'll get like little focal areas that don't look so bad. have just been, you know, kind of stubborn, not really responding. And you can culture one of the worst methicillin resistant stuffs you've ever seen that really has hardly any options. And we're having to like bleach it and do all these other things. So I think clinical impression can maybe help, but like you said, they really can look like each other. So I think that history is absolutely the most important part is what have they been on? Um, has it worked in the past? Like if they've been on say cefpidoxime or cephalexin uh, a year ago and it worked wonderful and it's just recurring now, like there's probably just, you know, something else like a seasonal allergy that's causing that. And we're not necessarily having a resistant staff versus we have been on four antibiotics. It's never gotten better. And when we look under the microscope there, which we're still doing our cytology because things can change too. I've had ones where I do the cytology thinking, oh my gosh, it's probably like a terrible resistant staph. And it's just that it was actually malassezia no one ever picked up on. Um, so that's why we're always doing that cytology because the skin is ever changing and can change very quickly. But it is totally that history. It's, did we respond? How fast did it come back if we did respond? Did we totally not respond? What other meds were being given at that time? So I love that you brought up how important that is. So we talked a little bit about culture. When do you kind of officially decide? And I know it can really ver be variable depending on the case, but you know, culture is not a cheap test. 
Um, but mm-hmm. it's a great test. It's a non-invasive test. So I'm with you. I'm always up to culture. Um, but what are the things where you really, say you have someone who has some financial concerns, but you really think it's important. Like it's one of the most important things we can do for that pet and say, we do need to treat them systemically. Like they can't just bathe every day or, or anything like that. What are the things you look for? You were like, this is actually a very important thing for us to be doing right now is to culture the skin. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think with my deep pyoderma cases, right? So um, never say never, but unless it's really focal, I think if you have any sort of widespread deep pyoderma, it's highly likely you're going to need a systemic. Um, And so in that instance, I think that the money you spend on the culture, which I fully understand costs more in private practice than it does, at least where I work at the university, um, that money is worth it because you are going to be using this drug for six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks or however long it takes. And some of these drugs are really expensive and you may choose the wrong empirical choice, right, for that pet, especially if it's a large breed dog. And by the time you put them on the first course of antibiotics that doesn't work, you would have spent money and then some, you know, had you just done the culture. So I think with deep pyodermas, it's it's always a good idea if you have any suspicion of of MERS-P. With the superficials, you know, I think you kind of said it. If I think there's zero chance that I'm going to have compliance or uh, if the dog is going to permit the owners um, to do any sort of topical therapy, then that's another one that I reach for. Because if I truly have owners that have financial concerns and I'm suspicious of a meth-resistant staff, if it's superficial, hey, I don't have to spend that money on the culture. I can go ahead and treat this topically most of the time, depending on location and we, we don't have to spend that money. Um, but <clears throat> if I think that there's meth resistant staff and topicals out of the equation, I, I need the culture because what I'm not going to do is play the up the ante game with antibiotics. I just mm-hmm. won't, you know, like you have to find someone else. <laughs> um, I will do the, yes, I can try a cephalosporin again. You know, if it's a first time offender, I may try clindamycin, but these are typically not first time offenders. Um, you know, you could argue maybe trying TMS um, in, in these instances, but we have a whole host of side effects that we may bring into the picture. So even though, you know, I, I think it's an okay choice, I don't love it unless I have a culture telling me, but you will not get me to use a fluoroquinolone or chloramphenicol or rifampin or any of these other drugs, unless I have a culture telling me I need to. Um, and so it, it's just balancing, right? I'd rather give the dog, um, at that moment, less work up as far as the allergy side goes and really focus on that meth resistant staff. Um, if, if, if I have to choose where I'm spending their money, but anytime I need systemics and I'm highly suspicious. Yeah. And I'm with you. I will not like there, are, there is like kind of my comfort level of some antibiotics, depending on that case in that situation, which I'm like, okay, well, we can see how this goes, but I actually will write it in the record. You know, like if we don't respond, we provided an estimate for culture, you know, we really need to um, save up for it or, you know, invest in that to get your pet treated. And yeah, as much as we love allergies and we love controlling those and we have to control them to some extent, right? Like if they're allergy uncontrolled, we might have a harder time controlling their infection. But if I have a pet coming in, who's got uh, methicillinuses and staph, you know, probably not the time I'm going to do an allergy test. Like we need to really put the money towards, you know, we can do symptomatic care um, the best we can but then we need to really get rid of that infection and then we can work our way into those other more long-term management things. 
but I, I, you know, I am in private practice and culture is expensive, but I think a lot of it, honestly, and we still, even though specialists have owners have come with financial concerns. Sometimes I think people think that of course we're going to have some, you know, weeding out of some of that, but we still absolutely get it. We have, we're in a very heavily trafficked area. So we have people who just like drive by and see animal dermatology clinic, Portland, like, Oh, animal derm I'm going. And, you know, I've had people come in, they can only afford the exam fee. So we still get those cases for me. It really comes down about a communication. So it is, you know, what is cytology? Why am I doing it? You know, why is it worth spending money on that? And how is it different? Like, sometimes I think people can see their estimate of like cytology, exam fee, culture, you know, all the stuff. And they don't, if they don't understand what it is, like, why do I need two separate tests? Um, if they don't understand the reasoning behind that, then they might not be willing to save up for it or invest in it. But I do find if we take the time and we're willing to work with the owner, like I've had owners where they say, I get paid next week and I can do it then. And so I say, okay, like, let's do the best we can. You know, maybe if they were on something, we're just going to stop it. Um, cause it wasn't working anyway. And let's just get the best culture we can. And then come in as a quick drop off. We will, we'll get the culture when you can afford it and we'll send it in. And then, you know, we'll just bathe daily until we get those results in or whatever we're going to do, or, you know, we're just going to wait and do the best hygiene we can. So it really comes down about client communication and the expectation, um, like, Hey, if this doesn't work, we really need to consider culture. Here's what that cost. Let's see how things are going at recheck. So I think sometimes it's overlooked that we kind of either prejudge owners, like they would never want to do it. Like we come in and we're like, oh, they won't, there's no way they can do culture and all this stuff. And honestly, they're sometimes the ones that will bend over backwards and do anything for that pet. So I never try to prejudge whether someone will culture or not. And sometimes I've seen it because as referral based hospitals, we get, you know, records from the general practitioner. And I've had cases where I just see decline, decline, declined. Um, and think, oh, they maybe won't do the diagnostics, but it's just actually no one's ever explained to them why we would do it. So I do really think client communication is huge, especially when we're going on the journey of allergies and a really resistant infection, because those are not easy fixes. And they are things that can be extremely frustrating and time consuming for owners to deal with. Um, so you, you mentioned a little bit about like topical therapy and we love topical therapy in Durham. We're always setting home like a shampoo and a mousse and, you know, epidermal barrier function repairs. Um, so how do you approach these cases topically? Say you either have someone who can't afford a culture or you have someone that's super gung ho and they will do anything you say, what topicals are you reaching for in those cases as far as, um, ingredients and then like frequency of those things? You know, I think this is another one where you talk to a lot of different people and you get different opinions. Um, and that happens among my colleagues here. And I think what's interesting is that there's a bit of a regional difference that I've experienced um, because when I was down in, in Texas, uh, we had, you know, sunshine all the time. And so it, to me, that wasn't a barrier. Now that I'm practicing in Ithaca, New York, you know, when it's January, February, they may not want to take their large breed dog, right? And with this yeah. dense 
boat, they can't bathe it outside and can they even get it in the tub? So I think that that, that factors in. Um, but what I firmly believe is that it really goes down to communication as you said, right? Because that is such key in our profession in general um, that sometimes clients are have a barrier against topical therapy because no one really explained to them why it was of such benefit. So I try the same thing you were saying, not to judge who will and won't do it and really have an honest conversation with them about why. So I'm a chlorhexidine girl. Um, I, I like it. I, I'm really comfortable with lots of products. I tend to use like a 3% or a 4% shampoo, but I'm very happy with a 2% with my clonazole, you know, or something else added if I'm going for potential yeast control too. Um, and I, I prefer shampooing when I can get it. So if I were only treating a pyoderma with a medicated topical product, I would want to bathe that pet ideally daily until resolution of lesions. And then, you know, maybe a week beyond, because that's sort of how I work with, with my orals. Um, and that might be two weeks, four weeks, you know, whatnot. I would say average three. And I really try to get owners on board for that because no one wants to bathe their dog every day for three weeks right? But I want them to understand that that's what I'm talking about. Now, what I more commonly do is I say, all right, we can do every other day bathing, you know, 10 minute contact time. But on that off day that we're not bathing, can we use a topical spray or mousse that contains the chlorhexidine? And I use both um, depending sort of on where the lesions are and use that maybe twice a day on the off day when you're not doing the shampooing in the bath. Um, and I find that that works really well too. Um, and then when I'm doing maintenance therapy, you know, cause I've got that, um, allergic that's prone to infections, maybe once a week, you know, maybe twice a week, um, different times of year. But I think that what I see sometimes with the RDVM's, uh, records is that they're doing a great job and they're getting the clients to do the bathing, but maybe the frequency is just once a week. Maybe they get it up to twice and it's not always them, right? It could be the barrier with the client, but if I am using that as a sole therapy to treat the pyoderma, it's not working for me at once, twice a week. It's daily to every other day with some sort of other topical. Um, and so I prefer shampoo if there's any sort of widespread lesion. Um, if it's focal, I go nuts with the sprays or the mousse or the wipes even, you know, they have the great Clorhex wipes. Um, but if it's somewhat widespread, I want the shampoo at least every other day. And then I'm going to supplement something else on that, that off day. Um, and then same rules apply, recheck and treat a little bit beyond resolution um, is sort of what we, what we promote here. Do you utilize bleach at all in these cases, like dilute bleach? Yeah, we do. So for some of the meth resistant ones, I think I just um, always did Chlorhex a little more. So it tends to be my go-to, but if that's not working, um, absolutely dilute bleach. And one of my colleagues reaches for it, honestly, sometimes um, before the shampoo, you know, cause if you have a pet that can tolerate it, and especially if you can leave it as a leave on um, and not maybe need to rinse, you know, if their skin can tolerate it and if it's not going all over the house and <laughs> bleaching their furniture, um, you know, some cases they, that have really chronic, you know, off on again, off again, resistant staff, they will do that um, initially as a therapy. And then as a maintenance, it's, it's cost-effective. Um, so that can be nice too, right? Cause some of our shampoos run 30 bucks a bottle or whatnot. And so never should we completely eliminate topicals from the picture just because of cost, right? Cause there are these other options. Um, but of course, always warn owners that if they have a black dog. There's a chance they're going to make it a, a light brown dog or a dark yeah. brown dog um, so that there aren't any surprises there. We always tell, so I'm with you, like to me, um, 
definitely bathing favorite chlorhexidine and really I'm only utilizing bleach sometimes in those really extremely difficult cases where, you know, there's no systemic options. Well, that's super scary. Um, or, you know, they, we can't, uh, culture, or I honestly use bleach mostly like with bathing. So I'm not a big, like replace with bathing, but I have, I've had some cases, especially I had a case recently was a really difficult methicillin resistant staff and the pet it's kind of one of those pets that has multiple issues An older Corgi, super cushionoid, you know, basically like complete uh pustular eruption on the belly and but the owner is willing to topical it up so we did like bathing every other day and like dilute bleach um once a day and it's done great um so i think you can kind of utilize these um topicals even concurrently it's like sometimes you get really tough infections and we're doing bathing in systemic and you know all these things um so i agree with you though bathing is like one of my favorite things to do and then what about those cases? And obviously there's not just going to be like one or two antibiotics you use for methicillin resistant staff. Like this is why we culture, um, you know, what do you feel like are some of the more common ones caveat we have to culture? There's lots of different opinions and options out there. I'm happy to share mine and some of my favorites. We all kind of have certain medications we lean to. You've already kind of mentioned some of them, um, but if you get a culture back, you know, what discussions are you having with the owners about some of these medications? You know, some requiring things like lab work, like for me, for Fampin, we're, we're doing lab work, like every, like one to two weeks, depending on the case and there, you know, any comorbidities, um, and that's expensive. So how do you kind of broach those certain antibiotics with your clients? Yeah, it's tough. You know, I think that some of the ones that I still see occasionally show up are TMS, Chlorophenicol and Rifampin. Um, and those are not ones that I consider to be tremendously well tolerated. And so in some respects, I sort of pro con and given that choice, if they've not had a lot of TMS before, I, I might be more inclined to reach for that. Of course, we, you know, we need to worry about tear production. We need to worry about that, you know, really quite severe drug reaction where we could affect bone marrow and whatnot. But I find that if they haven't had it before and we're not going much beyond three weeks or a month or so, most of them do okay, you know, and these are things you can monitor um, and it's pretty cheap, right? And then next in line, I, I probably reach for the chlorophenicol. And I think it's just because I have a comfort with it because I've used it for so many years and absolutely I see GI upset. It's a pain to give because it's TID. Um, it's not the most expensive, but it's not the cheapest if you have a large dog. But what was interesting to me, and I don't remember this in vet school ever, but then being in practice is that occasionally we would see these larger breed dogs that after three weeks or so, it seemed to be on this, they developed this, you know, hind end neuropathy. Um, and then they'd have this muscle weakness. And most of the time you'd stop the drug and it would come back and be fine. Um, so I, I do sort of judge a little bit and use that probably more in my smaller breed dogs. Um, and again, if, you know, in a perfect world, if it's superficial, hopefully, by a month, I've cleared it, you know, three weeks to a month, I've cleared it. And so maybe I don't get into that. Um, Rifampin is one that we actually debate a lot about um, in our department. And I'm one of the only ones I think that is, has used it a handful of times um, with liver monitoring for sure. Um, and I did learn, <laughs> and I will never forget that first client I used it in, I did not tell them that the uh, tears and the urine could turn 
you know, orange. And that's really important client communication because they thought their animal was bleeding. And then I felt, you know, a headache on my face. Um, but I, I will use it with monitoring. I think that it scares me a little bit. Certainly I won't use it if there's any, you know, comorbidity with the liver. Um, but it scares me a little bit and that I have had a, a good colleague friend that had a dog develop quite severe liver failure. I don't even know if it made it. And this was weeks after therapy, right? And I think that's the thing we need to understand with rifampin is that most animals will probably tolerate it fine. But if, if that individual animal is going to have a problem, it may not occur immediately. And it could occur weeks following the cessation of that therapy. Um, so sticking with the monitoring, I think is key. Um, but those are the ones, and I can say, I mean, rarely I've used injectable aminoglycosides. I can think of two cases in my life. I did a subcutaneous amicacin. And with that, we were monitoring um, urinalyses like twice a week. I would have them bring me a sample to look for casts. And once a week I did kidney values. And then um, with the guidance of some of my internal medicine friends, we were, I don't know if it helped, but we were even doing sub-Q fluids, you know, we're like, keep the kidneys happy. Um, and, and they did okay. One of them was an older dog and had a little bit of changes and then we stopped it, but, but they did okay. But these are things that sometimes we're faced with. And I don't for, you know, the imipenems, mirapenems, I'm, I'm not going there. Yeah. yeah. I'm very similar um, as far as like selection. And I think what's really important and where client communication becomes important is one, these are not benign drugs. So like we, and so that's where to me, like you said earlier, I will not just reach for these without a culture. Like it has to be proven to me it's needed. Um, and we have to ta have the discussion of, well, could we manage this topically? Is it realistic for you? If not, well, here's the options we have, you know, here's the pros and cons to those. Here's, we need to look at pre-lab work, make sure like there are no liver issues, make sure there are no kidney issues to make sure it's safe for your pet. Um, but also what I think is important for the owners to realize when we just say, you know, we're going to put them on some aggressive antibiotic is whatever causes pyoderma, we need to figure out because I don't want to reach for this again. We shouldn't. And what if it doesn't work next time? Cause that can happen too. So it's really important for owners to understand like, and this is why I'm such an advocate for cytology and that we, I basically say, I need proof. We need it. Like I need proof. We need antibiotics, even if it's cephalosporins. I need proof that we need an aggressive antibiotic because, you know, we can't do something like topical or, you know, clindamycin won't work or whatever. Like I need proof that we need that. And that's just being judicious with your antimicrobial use, which we all need right now. Um, and forever is like, you know, just as a doctor, you can say, I will not prescribe chloramphenicol without a culture. Like it's not a benign drug. I've absolutely had the hind limb paresis like you. It's really scary. Um, you warn them about it, it, but you know, you never know which case is going to happen in. Um, you, most of the time they reverse. I've had a, a colleague that didn't reverse the hind limb paresis and you know, that's, that's heartbreaking. So I think besides making sure owners know how serious these medications are is also making it known that we need to figure out a way for this not to come back. And that is, <laughs> rechecking yeah rechecking our cytology um figuring out the underlying cause whether that's allergies or an endocrinopathy or you know whatever they have that caused the pyoderma in the first place but and it's also not just saying here's your two weeks of chloramphenicol i'm sure you're okay it is we don't stop until you come in and your cytology is clear um you know and versus depending on the dermatologist or the doctor if they'll go for a bit after that but for me there's no finite amount of this is how long I treat this pyderma. It is, again, you got to prove to me we are at a point we can stop. 
So it's like, you got to prove to me, we need antibiotics with the cytology. You got to prove to me with some of these bigger antibiotics, we need them through a culture. And you got to prove to me, we're at a point that we can actually stop because I'm repeating the cytology. And that's how we're making that, that assessment, because I don't want your pet to need to need one of these big antibiotics. Again, I don't want to have to reculture your pet into months because all of a sudden even this big antibiotics not working so i'm just like a bit advocate that we have to be really really into client communication because they need to know how serious this is because um it is serious and here's my last little like plea when talking um before we wrap up about mental resistance staff mrsp does not equal mrsa so as you have heard Dr. Clark say, she called it MERS-P, I call it MRSP, but we've never said MRSA. So <laughs> unless they truly grow a MRSA, which can happen, please don't call it MRSA because sometimes that's, that's a bit of a different ball game as far as, you know, what are maybe the owners have given it, or maybe there's a, uh, someone who's immunosuppressed in the house. We have to be careful about. Um, I once almost had a, a owner. They came to me as a last resort and they almost euthanized their pet because they were dentists. And when their vet kept saying that the dog had MRSA, they had kids in the house and they were freaked out. And it turns out it was an MRSP and with a culture and the correct antibiotics, the dog fully recovered within like a month. Um, so we also have to be very selective of how we're calling these things and realizing there's a, there's a reason that it's MRSP, not MRSA. And that's because it's a different species and you can actually grow MRSA from a pet. And that's something we have to take very seriously. Um, so that's just another, that's my training. I had a few mentors that were really sticklers about that. So it's stuck with me, but I've had owners who come in and say, my dog has MRSA. And I'm like, probably not. Um, it's different. So um, just kind of wrapping up Mitzi, this has been great. I just really loved having this conversation with you. It's such an important topic. So you kind of mentioned like rechecking and the follow-up. So I, I kind of mentioned, you know, how I recheck them and we decide, you know, how we're going to prevent those issues. Do you kind of feel the same way as far as how do we prevent MRSP from happening again? Or how do we really get intentional with having less methicillin resistance staff out there in the first place? Yeah, and I think it's such a problem on both, right, the veterinary and human side. And even though we have different staff that we're talking about, right, one favors canine skin cells, one favors humans, there could be crossover. I mean, it's, it's been shown. We don't think that the animals are necessarily this reservoir, but still, right, we worry. So I think that um, you said it in that you have to get to the underlying problem. Um, and I try to set my owners up at the very first visit that, hey, yes, I know we're all focused on this infection. This is the visual thing that is bothering you, bothering the dog. And if it's methicillin resistant, okay, you know, here's some extra things we need to talk about because resistance can be, you know, problematic. But if all we do is treat the infection and we don't dig deeper and we don't work on the underlying problem, then we're going to be right back here. Um, I also think that these are cases where I tend to, in my toolbox of multimodal therapy that I'm throwing at these, you know, often allergic, not always, could be endocrine or something else, dogs, um, I am going to put them on some form of intermittent bathing topical regimen um, if they are a repeat offender and try to decrease that. You know, and I think that can be somewhat controversial, but since we don't really have great documentation that these topicals are causing resistance, I would much rather do a chlorhex bath once or twice a week as a maintenance and hopefully prevent it from coming back or at least coming back as quickly um, while I, to buy myself some time so I can get to the underlying cause and manage that. 
because it's all fine and well that we know that there's an underlying cause. We have to do the work to find it. And especially when you're talking about the allergic patients, I mean, that could take a while. If this is a non-seasonal kid. I mean, you're doing your food trials, you're doing your parasite control, you're backing into your atopy, you know, atopic dermatitis diagnosis, and then talking about drugs versus testing and shots versus both. And, and that takes time. And so in the meantime, I don't want the animal relapsing that's already had the meth resistant staff. Um, so for me, it's, it's treating it, it's rechecking it, it's deciding your duration based on that recheck. And then it's some form of maintenance topical therapy weekly, often for me, if, they, if, if I'm still actively working on getting at the underlying cause. Um, and it's, it's setting the owners up that they're going to have a relationship with you, which is one of the reasons that we, we often get into this profession, right? I mean, we, we get to follow our patients for, for quite some time. I don't know if the owners always like that. Um, but that's, that's the way it is. So, you know, I tell them we're going to be friends because they're going to see me a lot in the beginning. Yeah. I love it. It is. It's just like setting the expectation. Like, you know, this is not just cause we get through this doesn't mean we're done. You got to figure it out. So I love that. It's so important to set that expectation right from the beginning, even if it's just one or two sentences of, but why did this happen? You know, we need to figure that out at least like setting something up for them and putting them in the home cares can be so important. Um, well, I just loved our chat today. I mean, it's just really great to always see some of the similarities and differences as even as dermatologists that we do with these cases. But I mean, I think if we can agree on anything, it is that MRSP or MERSP or methicillin resistant staff, soon intermediates is bad. (laughs) Yeah, very bad. Uh, (laughs) So we need to do our due diligence and take it seriously, but also educate our clients appropriately on it. Um, And that's multifactorial, topical, systemic, underlying cause, rechecks, cytologies, all of that is important. And I just really want to thank you, Dr. Mitzi Clark, for being on the podcast today and giving up some of your time um, to come and talk about staph pyderma with me. Thank you so much for having me. This was yeah. right drug, right duration, right? And then hopefully we'll get a handle on it all. Sounds per- That sounds like a good like little tagline, right drug, right duration, you know, right underlying cause. That one doesn't sound as good, but yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you, Mitzi, so much. Have a great day. Well, that was a great episode. Just so much involved in these cases. And it's such an important thing that we have to make sure we are communicating with our clients the importance of not only really getting through the infection and treating them up to the recheck with you so we can do cytology, but also just the importance of figuring out that underlying cause so that we can really decline how many of these cases we're seeing and decline how often these pets are getting methicillin resistant staff. We don't want to get a dog through this journey and then find out a month later we're back with another MRSP. So I really hope you learned a lot. Thank you so much, Dr. Clark, for being on this episode. If you guys enjoy these episodes, please continue to follow and leave positive reviews, I hope, at The Derm Vet on Instagram and Facebook, on LinkedIn. Also, just finding this podcast, whatever platform you use, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, um, and just leaving those good reviews because that ultimately helps us reach more veterinarians. So ultimately, we can help more itchy pets and hopefully ultimately have less cases of MRSP.